Old Testament reading for this morning is from Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices together. They sing for joy. For in plain sight, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from Luke 24. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. You are our rock, you are our redeemer, and we ask your blessing now upon us in Christ's name. Amen. So we're still in the Easter season uh, as, we, as we are moving forward through it, and today we are still considering the events of that first Easter day that, that Luke has recorded for us in his narrative uh, in, in chapter 24 here. And so we're picking up today on the second half of the little episode that we considered last week with Cindy, where Jesus, on that Easter day, the very same day that he rose from the dead, the very same day that he met the, uh, you know, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, here he comes and presumably late in the day shows up in this room with these disciples and he says, peace be with you. And he says to them, touch and see that I'm real. And then he asks, do you have anything to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish and he eats it. And then the episode picks up here today in the second half of it that we'll, that we'll consider in just a minute. But I want us to think about as we come into this moment where we're, we're sitting with this text, we're still camped out in Easter day uh, in terms of our narrative. And I just want us to ask the question, what does this have to do with us? Like what, as we read about these events of that first Easter day, as we read about Jesus meeting with his disciples, what does it mean for us as we live as followers of Jesus in our own time and place? As we live as people who seek to be a people of Easter hope, right? Resurrection hope, not one of the other many versions of hope uh, that, that we might cling to. As we steward an Easter message, this message that centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or as we try to live with an Easter perspective, that as we're looking at our own circumstances of life, if we're looking at our own successes and failures, right, the things that hurt in our life or the things that make us feel proud of ourselves, how do we look at these things appropriately through the lens 
of the death and resurrection of Jesus and of a God whose activity in the world looks like death and resurrection, right? And not just prosperity and success or not just avoiding suffering. And then thinking about what does it mean for us to live as people with an Easter posture toward God, toward others in the world, as those who take up a life in, in communion with our crucified and risen Lord, Jesus. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, he writes that when we celebrate Easter, we're really standing in the middle of a second big bang, a tumultuous surge of divine energy as fiery and intense as the very beginning of the universe. That's a really provocative way to put it, but what he's saying is essentially that in, in Jesus at Easter, what we see is this explosion of new creation resurrection life in the midst of an old world, of a dying and decaying creation, of a dying and decaying humanity that lives brokenly, that lives in the, in the thorns and the weeds of a world that we've made apart from God and against one another. So what does it mean for us then to live as people who are animated by this divine energy of the second big bang, the one that emerges not from nothingness but from the grave? the one that's not against a blank canvas, but is against the very canvas of brokenness and sorrow and death. So as we go back through Luke's narrative to join the Easter day disciples, so to speak, in that room where they meet the risen Jesus, what we get to do is we get to join them as they sit at the feet of Jesus, their teacher. And then we also get to, to sort of stand shoulder to shoulder with them, as it were, as they receive their commission from Jesus, their Lord. And we get to let the words that Jesus, is, that Jesus speaks to them in that moment, we get to let those words actually speak to us as disciples in this time and place. And we get to consider them specifically as Jesus gives attention to their understanding of what God has done in him and their proclaiming the message that Jesus now entrusts to his disciples to carry into the world. So I just want us to think about those two things, the understanding and the proclaiming that Jesus gives to his disciples in this moment. So first, let's think about this understanding. You know, verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What is happening there? Well, we've had a similar episode already in the, in, on the road to Emmaus where we got to consider what it means that Jesus opens the scriptures and helps disciples perceive how it's about him. And in that moment, if you recall those disciples, as soon as their eyes are opened and they recognize Jesus in the breaking of bread, he vanishes from their midst and they say, ah, when he was with us, did our hearts not burn within us? as he opened the scriptures to us. Well, here Jesus does the same with these disciples in this room where he's shown up. He said, peace be with you. Touch and see me. Know that I'm real, that I'm risen. Give me some food. They give him broiled fish. And then he opens the scriptures. And what he helps them do is he helps them begin to connect the dots to him. They help him connect the dots of the scriptures to him and he helps them connect the dots of their lives to him. And the way we connect the dots matters. Maybe you've heard the, the, maybe you've heard the phrase, uh, palm trees cause hurricanes. 
Have you? It, they don't. But, but show, me a, show me a hurricane where palm trees can't be found, right? Prove that they don't. It's a correlation versus causation kind of a thing, right? And that, it's, a, it's an example that often is used to illustrate how correlation can appear to be causation if you connect the dots in a certain way. And so understanding the way things relate to one another is important because there are different ways to interpret it. And a very plausible read of a situation, if that's all you have to look at, is that palm trees cause hurricanes. You have to know more to know that they don't cause it, but that the places where hurricanes appear are often places where palm trees grow, right? Well, Jesus does a similar thing, not so much in a causation correlation thing, but, he's, but in a connecting of the dots sense. He helps the, these people who've been reading their Bible for their whole lives and who have, in reading it, have understood it in a way that Jesus's death and resurrection isn't something that they just intuited would be that way, the way that the story would find its fullness. That's not what they expected God to do. That's not the hope that they were looking forward to based on the text that they had been reading. And what Jesus does is he shows up in their midst and he helps them connect the dots of their Bible to him. And he reorients them as readers of it to where they go back and read the story differently. And as those who would apply the scriptures, who would carry that story forward into the future on a different trajectory than they would have apart from Jesus's showing up in their midst and changing their understanding. What does Jesus show them? Well, we get this threefold mention, right, of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And those are technical terms. I think Cindy talked about this last week. But the law of Moses is what would be commonly called Torah, or which you might experience in other places called the, the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And it's a, so it's a section of the Bible that, that is then going by this name, Law of Moses. And then the prophets is another section of the Bible. It's the section that would include books like Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the 12 uh, little prophets that we have toward the end of our Old Testament. It's another section of the Hebrew Bible that's kind of in the middle. And then there's a third section called the Writings, and the first book of that section is often the Psalms in, most, in the way that the, the books are often ordered. And so to refer to the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is, is a shorthand way of referring to the whole of what we call the Old Testament or what they would have called, you know, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, or the Tanakh, uh, which is a, a shorthand, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, law, prophets, writings. It's, it's the way they refer to the very collection of books that they had. And so Jesus is saying, he's basically saying, like, let me open this up and show you how the whole thing goes toward me, how it's about me. And what's important to say then, to notice then too, is that he shows them how it's necessary that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. Well, now where does he get the proof text for that? Where in the Old Testament can you go and say, all right, there's the verse that shows us that the Messiah is going to suffer and die and rise. You can't find it. It's not a verse that you can go find. It's not a proof text that's available to us. And so it's one thing that this helps us do as readers of the Bible is what Jesus does with these disciples is not go back and start turning over every rock in the Old Testament and showing how he's hidden underneath each rock, right? He doesn't open up every 
paragraph or every sentence and say, ah, you see, this is really me, right? What he does is he takes the entirety of it and he's saying the whole of the story is about me. It moves toward me. That it's not that each individual part is really about Jesus and the way we approach it is some aggregate of little coded statements about Jesus, but rather that the parts relate to the whole of the story of Israel that we find in the Hebrew scriptures. And it is the whole of the story that finds its fullness in Jesus. And so the way that we interpret any part of the Old Testament, any part of, of, of the Bible that comes before Jesus, first has to be drawn through that unfolding story to where we, where we allow it to be God's word for God's people back then. We allow it to have its own breathing room in the story that's moving forward in the people of Israel and in the world. And that we recognize that the way Jesus fulfills it is not with some straight line Bible code way of becoming the fullness of every sentence, or every concept, but that this complicated story with all kinds of dead ends and dark corners and weird moments and deplorable episodes and horrific moments that's tragic in its own way and beautiful in its own way and full of all kinds of complicated things, that story is allowed to just be complicated in and of itself. And the way that Jesus fulfills the whole is that that whole big complicated story that unfolds over thousands of years unfolds toward him. And what, he, what happens when he arrives on the scene is he shows us what God is like and he shows us what the life of God's beloved is like. And it's a life that leads to the cross. But then life beyond the cross is a life that leads to the empty tomb, to that second big bang, to that moment when God would explode into the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of his spirit. New life, new creation, new hope. So Jesus takes his disciples to Bible school and he, he shows them how to connect the dots in a new way and how they connect to him. And in doing so, he gives them new ways for connecting the dots of their own lives to him. Is the suffering of Jesus evidence that God doesn't love Jesus? No, he is the beloved of God and he went to the cross. What do we do with our own suffering? What do we do with our unanswered prayers? What do we do with our disappointments and frustrations? Do we live as people with a non-Easter perspective in which all of the things that don't go our way might be interpreted as evidence that God has turned away from us or that God doesn't care? Or will we as Easter people who live in communion with our crucified and risen Savior recognize that the life of God's beloved is not a life that goes away from suffering, but toward it? But it's also not a life that dead ends in a tragic destination of suffering and death. But that as God's beloved moves into suffering and into death, that's not the end of the story. Because God is faithful to raise Jesus and the story keeps moving forward through suffering and beyond it into everlasting life. And so as you and I live as disciples of Jesus and Easter people, where we're trying to connect the dots of our lives to him, we're trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to make sense of the events that feel chaotic and that are chaotic often and that feel just wrong because they are just wrong. We're trying to look at our own selves and grapple with our own disappointments, our own sense of loss, our own sense of unmet longing, or we're trying to relate to our own successes and the things that we're good at and we're wondering, like, does this mean I don't need God anymore? 
and being transformed through all of it as those who relate to God through our crucified and risen Savior, as those who do live as those in need of the deliverance of God and who don't read every suffering and every unanswered prayer through the lens of God's absence and displeasure. The beloved walked in the way of the cross and he invites us to join him on that path, knowing that it is the path also to everlasting life. And so it's as we recognize that the story unfolds toward Jesus and that our lives are caught up in him and that the history of the world as it's told through the scriptures is a history that's building toward Jesus that takes a pivotal turn in Jesus, we get caught up in the movement of that story. We get involved with God now and what God is doing in the world. And the thing that Jesus illustrates here as he gives his disciples a new commission is he helps them understand what is it that they are proclaiming. He talks about proclaiming, right? If you look in these latter verses, the repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I'm sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When Jesus talks about proclaiming, he's connecting the work that he was to do as Messiah, which he says in Luke 4, is to proclaim the kingdom of God. He's connecting that with what he's now commissioning his disciples to do as his witnesses. And in doing so, Luke is getting us ready for volume two of his work, the book of Acts, which we're going to start next week and we're going to be in all summer and fall following this as we continue to follow the story of this Easter movement and the coming of the Spirit. And so what we see is Jesus entrusts to his followers this work of proclaiming to the world this good news of repentance and forgiveness, this good news that God in Christ has done something world-changing in his crucifixion and resurrection. And that now, that this message is going to go forth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And this is where we see a kind of pivotal shift in what Jesus tells them. You see, the vision that Jesus is stepping into, if you were just to read like Isaiah, for example, and get a sense of like, what is the vision of the hope of God blessing all the nations? There's a vision that comes in Isaiah 49 about this light, the, the light that shines to all nations. What is the vision? And it unfolds through the rest of Isaiah where it's this picture of all the nations of the earth streaming toward Jerusalem and coming in to the center where in Jerusalem they would experience the goodness and the light of God and then from there go back out to the places where they came as those who are bearing the blessing of God. It's what we might call a centripetal movement from the edges to the center. But what Jesus does is he actually flips the script and he says, actually, where the story goes from here, the way that the ends of the earth will be blessed by this light of God is not going to be where we're going to set up camp in Jerusalem and have like a light station that everybody then comes to, but it's going to be from Jerusalem that you're going to receive a spirit and be sent out to the ends of the earth in every direction to be bearers who go, not just inviters who welcome people to come. And so it's a shift from the centripetal toward the center to the centrifugal, from the center to the edges. It's that the message will go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And for that to happen, Jesus says, stay here and wait for the promised gift. 
And what we'll read about as we get into Acts is that that promised gift is the very spirit of God who will enliven them with Jesus, who will animate their mission, and who will be the very life that they carry as they go out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is how the story unfolds, and we'll spend all summer and all fall following that story through the book of Acts. Christine Pohl, in her book, Living into Community, she says, the best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. And get this, she writes, Jesus risked his reputation and the credibility of his story by tying them to how his followers live and care for one another in community. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. As we think about our commission for Jesus to be proclaimers, um, I don't know about you, but I can get a little skittish around proclaiming because we've seen how obnoxiously that gets done so often, right? Just by the loud, the loud people who, who trumpet the good news as they understand it in ways that often don't seem to have very much to do with Jesus. And so I can find myself kind of backing off some proclamation, like kind of wanting to be maybe more reserved with that because I recognize like, hey, a lot of proclaimers have kind of ruined it. <laughs> um, and we live in a world that's been really shaped by the reality that many Christian leaders and proclaimers have been proven to be hypocritical, proven to be abusive, proven to be toxic narcissists who have proven to be whatever. And so there's a problem that the plausibility of the message has been, has really eroded because of the way that we've lived as the church. Maybe not you or me and as individuals, but we collectively, right? As we, we're an us, it's not a them that's done the thing. We're an us together as one. These are our people. Um, but it's difficult because we realize that there's um, there's a lot of pain and hurt that's been done by people who come proclaiming Jesus, and there's a lot of noise that's been made that doesn't really sound like the message that Jesus came to proclaim. And so it feels like it's such an uphill struggle. It feels like, man, there's no possibility of having an appropriate way to proclaim anymore. It's like, I feel like I just need to live quietly and just be kind. And that's a good thing to do, is live quietly and be kind, for sure. At the same time, it's not Jesus' fault, and it's not a problem with the message. And in fact, the message is still absolutely the hope of the world. And so the problem isn't a problem of like, we can't proclaim anymore because that's, you know, imperialistic or it's manipulative. It can be if you do it that way, but that's not inherent to the message. It's not inherent to the commission. And Jesus sent his disciples to go out into the world as humble servants who bear a message and a light and a love and a life that is the very hope of the world. And to preach it indeed and in word to make, you know, to be able to explain the hope that is in them when they suffer, not to be obnoxious, not to be coercive, not to be power hungry, or to try to wed their message to some sort of institutional power, but to be the family of God and the followers of Jesus who carry the life and love of God into the world, to go in his spirit, to go forth as those who are getting involved with God and what God is doing in the world. And that's really the spirit of what we're trying to cultivate through this Resurrection Rhythms initiative that you've heard me talk about in recent weeks, if you've been around. It's, not, it's nothing special. It's just a, it's, it's an, hopefully an easy on-ramp for us to just 
engage a life of following Jesus that takes up actual intentional rhythms of worship and community and mission, recognizing that when you follow Jesus, you follow him in all, all three of those directions, toward God in renewed connection, toward one another in the community of faith that we would be practicing a life together that's deep and substantive and beautiful and not just simply based on the same kinds of common interests or commonalities that define any other tribe that you can find on the face of the earth, but that we would be different. That the way we do life together is animated by this living spirit of God as family. That we practice a unity that's not based on agreement or common views but that's based on the fact that in the person of Jesus, God came to be with us. And so we're oriented around him, regardless of how much or, or little we understand that or one another. And that God's spirit falls on the Israelite and the non-Israelite alike, <laughs> on the Jewish and the non-Jewish people alike in this moment of the apostles. And they gotta figure it out as one family. What do you do when God takes all the divided tribes and says, I've made you family and me, go work it out. That's what we do as the church even when agreement feels impossible. Family isn't. And so we practice doing the Christian life not as a solo sport, but as a family affair. And we believe that's the only possible way for us to grow in healthy spirituality. And just at the same time, it's not just worship and community of living toward God and living toward one another, but like God doesn't, we can't follow Jesus into a Christian bubble because he doesn't stay there ever. He goes into the world, he gets near need. And so there's no way to live as a mature disciple if we're not following Jesus into the places of pain, into the places of need and brokenness, not as saviors of the world, but as witnesses to Jesus who is the savior of the world. We come as recipients and sharers of that which we've received. We come humbly alongside of our neighbors, not as the haves to the have not spiritually, but as fellow subjects in the story God is telling about the world that he's exploded into the world in this second big bang moment as the spirit has come and we get to be the people who steward and share that. So that's what we're trying to do this Easter. That's what we're trying to live together more intentionally by taking up these resurrection rhythms. And my prayer for us, my hope for us as a community is that as we do that, God would meet us. That God would do something remarkable within us. That God would give us experiences of his love and his presence that are real, that give us something really substantive to say as we show up in the lives of one another and the lives of our neighbors as those who can testify from our own experience that God is good and powerful and at work in the world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love toward us in Jesus. We thank you for your persistent presence among us. We thank you for the resurrection power that you have unleashed in the world through Jesus and your spirit, and for the incredible privilege that it is to now ride along with you as your family that's caught up in the whirlwind of your spirit unleashed in the world. We confess that we don't have a clue what that means half the time, and we thank you for the freedom that we don't have to, um, but we also thank you for the gift that, Jesus, you give understanding to your disciples, not of everything, but you do lead us, uh, that you are leading us into all truth by your spirit of truth. And so we confess that we do need you and we pray that you would continue to help us connect the dots of the scriptures to you and to connect the dots of our lives to you in a way that as we perceive you more clearly and experience you more fully, 
that we be renewed in the likeness of Jesus and go forth into the world meaningfully and fruitfully as your witnesses and servants and shockingly even as your friends and as children to our heavenly Father. So do your work among us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.